Welcome to the RCC Points of View podcast, brought to you by the Scottish Residential Childcare Workers Online Forum. In this episode, I talk to a managing director of two specialist therapeutic residential childcare communities about his point of view about residential childcare. Amongst other things, we hear about the director's journey from social worker to managing director, whereby insights are provided in relation to the prospects and challenges for the sector, such as the benefits associated with group living, matching placements to need, risk management, physical restraint, the care review, recruitment, training the workforce and the broader operational challenges. I enjoyed this interview and I hope that you do too. So without further ado, please welcome Amberly Cares Managing Director, Kevin Gallagher. Hi Kevin, first question, can you tell me a bit about yourself and what your connection is to residential childcare in the UK? Uh, hi Joe. well yeah, thanks very much for uh, uh, inviting me to chat to you today. Um, I'm a social worker by original training. Uh, I qualified back in the late 90s and um, unusually for social workers, I actually went straight into residential care in the local authority. So I started my career as a as a residential social worker in a local authority children's home in the West Midlands. Um, from that point, um, I moved into the independent sector a couple of years later. Um, and shortly after that became the registered manager, uh, my first management role of a six-bedded uh, children's home in Shropshire, which is where I'm speaking to you from today in Shropshire. Um, and so over the last nearly 30 years, uh, I've worked in and around residential care in lots of different shapes and sizes and operating models in different parts of the country. Some of that's been... Um, uh, small organisations operating perhaps in one county, um, right the way up to a period where I was a director of operations for a large national organisation with a very significant footprint and lots of things in between. So residential care um, in, in all of its shapes and flavours has been um, has been my bag, really. Very interesting. And can you tell, just in terms of your initial kind of decision to go into residential care, having qualified, what was it that kind of prompted that? Um, I mean, I think like a lot of people in helping professions, um, you know, I have my own early life experiences. Um, I've not been in care myself, uh, but I had a very troubled period in my late teens and early 20s. Um, and one or two, you know, what we'd now describe as adverse childhood experiences. Obviously, they weren't called that back in the day. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, there's, there's a degree of wounded healer. Um, which I think is is you know true of a lot of people. Um, I think the the idea of wanting to um, help people, and I've always been interested in kind of communicating with people, finding out about people's stories. Um, I come from quite a large family. We've got other helpers in other parts of my family. So lots of things really. I think when I did my social work training, um, it was a real turning point. That was where I was coming out of a very difficult period in my own life. Um, and it was the beginnings of getting back onto a new and more optimistic track. Um, and it's kind of taken me on from there, really. 
Uh, thanks very much for that. So you're currently positioned as director of Amber Lee Care. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm just kind of wondering if you can tell me about the main challenges in terms of running services that support children, young people and families. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, I, I end up with a number of hats on at the moment, um, you know, after some time served. Um, so in my in my day job, uh, yes, I'm managing director for Amberley Care, which is a, a service that runs two uh, very specialist therapeutic residential communities for teenage boys, um, specifically with harmful sexual behaviour. So we have residential care and homes uh, sorry, residential care and our own schools and our own in-house clinical team. But then linked to that, for the last more than a decade, uh, I've been a trustee and involved with a, a practice charity, uh, the Consortium for Therapeutic Communities, which is focused on um, relational practice, relationship-based, um, theoretically informed practice. And through that, um, our services and the charity are linked to a quality improvement network at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. So that's looking at um, therapeutic service standards. So all of those um, hats, those different hats that I wear, they all kind of overlap. Um, mm -hmm. And I think uh, they, they sort of cross fertilize. And I think when I look back at how um, residential care, its use, where it sits in society, where it sits within kind of social services, how that's changed over the last three decades. Um, I think that's where the challenges lie. Uh, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, residential care comes in lots of different shapes and sizes and models. Um, and I think when you look at how residential care is used, sadly, it's still used as a placement of last resort in many instances. Um, there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, both on the local authority and on the provider side about what residential care can look like um, and how it can be used quite deliberately. So the sorts of challenges are around, um, you know, matching young people, young people being referred to residential care with increasing multiple complexities uh, of need. Um, and really, it's how that translates into the risks that they present and managing different sorts of risks in communities, in a complicated regulatory um, environment, um, making sure that you've got the right numbers of staff. Recruitment is a very live issue for everybody at the moment, but also then making sure that staff have got the right kind of knowledge and skills and that you're able to support them to do this hugely rewarding, but also emotionally and sometimes physically demanding, demanding work. So, yeah, it's it, it's always round, really. I think as a as an operational uh, leader, there are particular challenges when you look down into your organisation about how you maintain practice and how you maintain quality and how you maintain um that that listening to young people and making sure they're getting what they want but then I very much manage at the boundary because the service doesn't operate in a bubble so you have to look out into the operating landscape and see well what's happening off the back of the social care review and what's happening in relation to uh, changes in regulation or the, the funding pressures that local authorities are under and changing trends in commissioning. So there's a, there's a lot to go at all the time. There's never a dull moment, that's for sure. Yeah, very kind of complex. So I was just wondering, in terms of what you were saying there, 
if you had a magic magic wand, what needs to change, making it easier for services such as yourselves to help young people achieve their full potential? Um, I mean, I think it's interesting. In our particular setting, in our particular context, um, we're actually somewhat sheltered from a lot of those challenges because we run a highly specialist service. Um, so it's a very narrow brief. We work with a very specific profile of young people. The evidence base as to how you would approach um, assessment um, and intervention uh, is very robust. Um, even the, the operating model, we operate um, therapeutic communities. So these are very large children's homes. You know, we have 19 young people on one site and 12 in the other. So these are not typical provisions. And, uh, and that itself has a strong evidence base. So it means that in terms of those challenges, when I said, well, we look into our organisation, the way we do things, the way that staff interact with uh, you know the interface between care and education and therapy and how that's joined up um, the way that we use um, staff support places spaces to make sure that they can engage in relational work that's all quite clearly defined for us and externally when we're talking to local authorities either on a um, you know joining their preferred provider frameworks or when we're looking at individual referral discussions and also the conversation with regulators we're really clear about what we do why we do it that way what it looks like managing expectations so i think if we were to kind of extrapolate those experiences out into the wider system um it's cha it's challenging i think i think some things are going to take a, a long time to change um, mm. you know i i've had a whole generation working in in residential care right from the beginnings of the kind of the early days of the the purchaser provider split in local authorities and all the different iterations of regulation so i think to um to gradually turn some of those things is not going to happen quickly um you know it could be talking 5 10 15 years i think um a more deliberate use of residential care, I think a, a greater understanding, a return to a return to practice, I think, a return to theory um, and a focus on relationships. I, I, I mean, I, I think uh, a default assumption that I would have is that if you're a young person that is already being looked after, by default, there is a degree of trauma. You've been removed from a birth family. There have obviously been very complicated early life um, experiences. If once you're in that kind of looked after system, and it's a bit of a crass term, if you're a young person that, uh, you know, is not able to be in foster care or not able to be in a, in a family provision and residential care is the kind of intervention that's been talked about for you, then by definition, you are at that thinner end of the wedge. You know, you are a more complicated young person with more complex risks. And so I think that that demands um, a degree of knowledge and expertise within the service to respond to those. So I think a greater focus on practice. And I think, um, I think for commissioning to be able to understand and be more pur purposeful when it's using residential care and 
acknowledging and understanding that that residential care isn't about beds it, this this is not about matching numbers of young people into beds and have we got enough beds in a particular part of the country because these these beds are are very diverse they're not all the same um when you think about that kind of you know i know that the trends in numbers change but if you think about that somewhere between seven and nine thousand young people in the uk um, that will require residential care that's a very diverse population um mm. and they they need a diverse response and so i think there's there's definitely work to be done in understanding how local authorities can audit uh, and predict their trends in needs and then to be able to commission a broader spectrum of different types of provision uh, to be able to respond to those needs. And I suppose on the provider side, um, you know, equally, you know, we've we've seen a lot of consolidation. There are some very large services in, in the country. There are there are still the bulk are small and medium enterprises. And I suppose it's 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 working to understand that those different size of organizations will have different pressures on them. So, you know, if, if you're a large organization with a, a big portfolio of homes, um, there's going to be quite a lot of breadth of complexity within that. So your own internal structures about how you do education and therapy and so on and so forth needs to be able to respond to that diversity. Um, yeah. So that, that, that commissioning would be a big would be a big one, but there's a lot that flows from that, really. Yeah. Uh, a lot of kind of great points here. I was just kind of thinking when you were talking. Do you think that children's services within local authorities understand, you know, or, or even the ideology around social work, you know, the, the training that social workers receive? Do you think they understand residential childcare and the best way to use it based on current the way that social workers are trained basically i mean i mean the evidence and the reports would absolutely say no they don't um but but i think that's a bit of a sweeping generalization because there are clearly pockets um you know we we see it in an operational sense in terms of social workers and team managers and commissioners that you engage with that get it uh, and others that don't and that's you know that's replicated in the academic literature um mm -hmm. i think i think it would be it's complicated in terms of how, how where residential care sits now in relation to some of the kind of historical legislation you know we moved away from uh for for very good reasons we moved away from the old institutional group care of the you know 60s 70s and 80s you saw that change with the introduction of the children acts that focus on family first um and that's very much remains the driving ideology that the best place for a child to be is in their family and and absolutely you know i agree with that a family or a family type context mm -hmm. and at the same time there's a cohort of young people for whom that's either not possible or, or not or not what they want or not what they're looking for and that's also a very deliberate and positive placement choice and that's the bit that i think isn't really understood so i think for social workers to have um, I think it would be fabulous if social workers were able to have a, um, a, a placement, even if it was only for a week or two, to work in a children's home to understand what that work is like. Um, so I think it would help to, you know, reposition this sense of residential care being a deliberate, um, you know, a deliberate 
placement choice. It's an intervention. Um, we haven't lost all of those skills, um, you know, group work skills and um, being able to work in that that kind of quite domestic, quite intimate, quite familial. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you've got all of those those rhythms that you have within a home around, you know, bedtimes and eating and celebrating together and that, you know, the rhythm that goes across a, a week or a year. Um, there's a lot of that that gets replicated in residential care that's very akin to family, family um, settings without having that overly intense relational connection. It's different. I think I think for yeah. young people to young people. My experience of young people is they get they get different parts of their relational needs met from a range of different people within a team. So some of the people who they go to for their boundaries, some more so for their nurture and their cuddles, some to listen. So, you know, the staff team bring in such a rich variety of interests. It's almost more than any individual family or foster family could ever expect to provide but it's not the same it's, it's not trying to immediately replicate it's um uh it's like an adjunct really i think i don't know if i've gone a bit off off piece. no 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 listen i think you could cover that really well um you know it's that you know, as you can mentioned then you can mention a particular phrase and i can't remember it but it was a really nice phrase about, about residential childcare being considered differently you know and as being an intervention i think that's key we've kind of lost that you know so I was just kind of thinking in respect to some of the kind of, the, the kind of darker stuff about residential care. Now, I was kind of interested in your views about physical restraint. In Scotland at the moment, um, there's been a real kind of, you know, challenging period in respect to conversations about physical restraint. And, and from some quarters, there's been calls for physical restraint, including the Children's Commissioner for Scotland, for it to be banned. You know, that's been slightly, kind of, I suppose, diluted a wee bit. And it's uh, now chats about it being, you know, you know, minimised, you know, to, to the best effect, et cetera, et cetera. What's your views in respect to physical restraint within a, a residential setting? Should it be banned? Um, well, I suppose my my starting point would just be to acknowledge that um, it's a very serious step to, to physically intervene um, with, with a young person. It's not nice for anybody um, involved. Um, but... I think before answering the question about, you know, whether it should be banned or not, I'd make the point that when physical restraint is being used, um, it, it's, a, it's not in isolation. It's a, it, for me, it's at the end of a situation that should sit within relational practice. So, you know, even when you work immediately back from physical intervention, almost all of the trainings, most of them will be about de-escalation and diversion and trying to uh, trying to avoid being in that situation in the first place. And I would go back one further, you know, one step further and say that in any of the interactions that young people would be having in, in a care setting, it's relational, you know, so we should be, we should be talking about a culture of practice where um, young people are listened to um, staff are supported to reflect and explore on their own behaviours and what their own triggers are and how they use communication and how they use relationships with children. And the fact that we don't like, we don't like all of the young people that we work with to the same extent. And that varies for us because we're human beings. 
And I think if there's a much greater focus on supporting staff with the emotional and psychological work of engaging in relationships with children um, and systems where children have much greater say, much greater voice and much greater authority in the decision making and in challenging adult practice, which, which we have in our setting, if we focus more on that, <laughs> then the likelihood of getting into situations which might require some form of physical presence is dramatically reduced. So that would be my kind of starting point. In terms of the question about whether it should be um, you know, banned or not, um, I think it throws up a it throws up another obvious question is that if young people are being looked after uh, in some form of residential context, they have needs that need to be met. And if their behaviours are such that they're putting themselves at very significant risk, the question would be if we don't have some, some kind of physical intervention as an absolute um, you know, last resort to keep people safe, what happens instead? Um, because, you know, I think there are, I think there are probably, I haven't looked at the data here, I think there are probably lots and lots of examples where staff and young people are unsupported, not in the right contexts, not having stable relationships, things happening in emergencies, things happening in crises, where if we could make some of these other changes in the system, we would reduce the likelihood of that happening in the first place. But we do have that at the moment. And I think that um, there are probably plenty of instances where physical intervention is not being used appropriately. Um, I think there are probably situations where young people find themselves in where there could be alternative um, solutions and alternative outcomes but the staff either don't have the knowledge or the confidence or the support to, to apply apply them. So I, I don't think I would support an absolute ban without an understanding of where the alternative solution would come from. But I certainly think um, that a greater focus on practice and support and systems would significantly reduce the likelihood of physical intervention needing to be used in the first place and when it was being used it would be used more appropriately for shorter periods of time for a much clearer purpose uh, and be able to have that kind of follow-up and debrief afterwards so it sits within the context of a relationship rather than it yeah. being something done to a young person yeah i think that's key the bit about kind of context and also what i've been hearing is what a bit complexity, you know, without naming it as being complex, but the whole relational approach to practice and everything that sits around that is about systems and yes. these are complex systems. So on that kind of note, I was just wondering, because we're working in complex environments, um, do you think the current qualification kind of levels are good enough to enable us to practice in a way that's relational, um and you know authentic and therapeutic um again tricky one in short in short no <laughs> but it comes but it comes with a but and a caveat really um i mean a few different things to say i think the the, the challenge with the qualification framework is a bit like the challenge with regulation um you're trying to have something standard that applies everywhere 
But as we've acknowledged in this conversation already, the actual context that people are working in are really diverse. So I think, you know, a qualification like the kind of QCF workforce development provides a, a baseline and a framework. Um, it's a good starting point, but it needs on top of that, it then needs to be layered with much, much greater in-house. I think it's in-service and in-house theoretical training around the specific task that a particular service is working with. So you've got a number of things there. You've got um, knowledge, understanding about, um, you know, particular presenting needs. So, you know, whether that's around um, attachment or self-harm or harmful sexual behaviour or whatever it might be. But you've also got then, I think, the kind of theoretical and conceptual understanding about the working model in a particular home, because they will vary. So in, in our setting, we're using a psychodynamic group model that involves a significant amount of reflective practice and is asking staff to be very open about themselves and how they interact in relationships, all kinds of relationships. Now, that requires a lot of additional training and support spaces that are relevant to our context. So, and I think that's where it ties back into commissioning. Um, I think the, the specifications for practice I would like to see them much more robust. Um, I'd like to see local authorities being much more, more robust. And they may need some support to know what questions to ask in order to be robust. Um, but I think that starts to help to drive, to, to drive quality. I think the other thing I would say about qualifications is, um, and my views changed on this over the, over the years. If you'd have asked me this 10 years ago, um, I would have been very much pushing for a kind of a graduate-led workforce and, and for higher levels of qualification and so on and so forth. And that absolutely has its place. Um, but I also now think far more emphasis should be placed on, on the kind of the relational aspects and not everybody not everybody wants to go down an academic route um not not everybody uh feels that they have the kind of confidence for that because their because their skills are in other areas so i mean i you know i i've met some some fantastic highly educated uh, and really well qualified workers um over the years whose emotional intelligence isn't great uh and I think you need that that broader mix of people. We know that the the children the children take different things from the people who are around them, and it is a complex system. And I think, you know, to use a bit of a, a shorthand, really, um, you need thinkers and doers. Mm. Uh, and I, I, you know, I I I I don't think putting everything into a qualification based um framework is the way to go I, because i think we would lose i think we would lose things if we went down that route and we need that mix yeah that's really interesting and especially you know, thinking about that whole thinkers and doers thing i know you're doing your phd and you're getting quite kind of close to the kind of end you know yeah. like right up stage i'm just wondering if you can tell me a bit about your phd and you know what your hopes are in terms of the impact your research might have um, yeah, I mean, that, that's been an interesting journey, like nearly seven years part time behind the scenes. And, and yeah, kind of the, the, the end is in sight. Um, 
it, it's been a study, uh, so it's linked to my link to my own practice. So it's been a study looking at um, resident residential interventions, therapeutic residential uh, settings for young people with harmful sexual behaviour, um, mm -hmm. and in particular, looking at the contribution that relationships have in the success or not of placements. So um, I've been interviewing. Um, different staff so therapists carers and educators from three different services and i've had the absolute joy and privilege to uh, to interview a number of young they're all young men now um, interviewing a number of young men who lived in the same services and it's been about getting their different kind of perspectives and experience on pl the placement journey you know arriving being there thinking about moving on and what that's what that was like and thinking about that from a relational perspective. Um, so I, I think in terms of it, it, it's important to, I think it's important to give that kind of care experience community um, more voice. Um, so our particular model of practice gives them a lot of voice in the actual day-to-day. -day. That's part of the intervention. Um, but I think generally speaking, uh, that's not the case. So I was very keen to make sure that the the former resident voice far outweighed um, the staff um, staff voices that I spoke to, um, and it wasn't just looking at the relationships between um, you know individual young people and particular staff members. I mean they have talked about key working, but they've really talked about the relationships with each other uh, and the relationships with. Um, different parts of a service so I think um, I've used a methodology called contribution analysis which is deliberately designed to be used in really complex systems where there are so many different factors over a period of time that might contribute to the eventual outcomes you can't really you can't really pin that's the problem with residential care you can't really say well it was this thing that made the difference it's a combination of things, but what's absolutely loud and clear is that it is the relationships between people that ultimately impact on the experience that a young person has of being in care and that that can be harnessed deliberately. If you're thinking about how to use relationships within the operating structure and within the culture of practice, you can harness it in a in a purposeful way, and I think there are there are definitely lessons from that to ripple out into. I mean, not just residential care that that applies in all kinds of contexts. That applies in school. Um, mm -hmm. It applies yeah. in staff teams. It applies in all kinds of workplaces. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's been it, it's been um, it's been a, a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, a roller coaster. But that the. the Speaking to the young speaking to the young men, uh, and actually, when I'm just going back in now and looking at the data and re-looking at the transcripts of some of their interviews, some of their testimony is just so powerful. Like, it, yeah, so powerful. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to get that get that published in the, in the next few months. Sounds brilliant. It'll be well worth uh, a good read. I think it'll kind of um, I think it will lead to a few kind of conference presentations, hopefully. Well, yeah, yeah, get, well, let's get it. Yeah, get it written first. <laughs> Interesting. I get, get it written first. So, I suppose it takes us nice on the next kind of question, which is about residential care. And you kind of covered some of it, but will it ever be used differently and more appropriately, in your opinion? 
Um, I mean, I'm a glass half full. Uh, so, so yes, I think it will. Um, I think, um, I think there's there's always a place. Sadly, sadly, there's always a there's always a place for um, you know highly highly specialist residential care. I think that if you look at the changing trends over the last kind of 15, 20 years, um, foster care has expanded significantly. Foster care itself has become a more segmented um, part of the system with different types of foster care now and therapeutic and specialist and solo. Um, and I think when you look at the population uh, and how residential care is used, we see um, greater diversity, greater complexity, greater risk. When we look at trends and numbers coming into care, they're on the rise. I mean, in England, we've obviously had the social care review and we're waiting for the government's response. And I mean, I absolutely support um, its general thrust of a return to much more early help for families to prevent your children from coming into care in the first place. Um, but accepting that there will be young people who are in care I think it goes back to my comments earlier about more demanding specifications and residential care being used in all of its different technical uh, and theoretically informed ways. Um, I think there are big challenges for commissioning. Um, again, when you look at the some of the reports that have come out, uh, in, in England we had the What Works for Children's uh, Social Care reports, which fed into the, um, the Social Care Review really talking about that need to kind of strengthen commissioning there's a separate conversation going on in wales at the moment um, a slightly different political agenda there about how the market is uh, you know is is working or managed but again the you know the thrust there is very much about about commissioning but i think that uh, as a provider i think the 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 changes in commissioning um, I, th I think to have a, a sharper and more demanding commissioning will inevitably require those on the provider side to to really step up. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think it's sad to say, but I think it is a, a truism. Um, there, there is some mediocre provision out there. I mean, we see, you know, sadly, what gets reported in the media is only ever when things go wrong. And when it goes wrong and you look at it as a practitioner, you 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 run through the questions that you want to ask in your head about well when was that commissioned and what was happening with the matching and are those staff team prepared and do they have the right knowledge you, you know you know where that's going to have gone wrong that's led to those situations happening and that's what needs to change so that mm. does require changes on both sides uh local local authorities and providers yeah and how how do we kind of share good news stories in an ethical way what, what do you think is a, you know, an appropriate way to do that? It's, so it really, can narrative. it's really difficult. It's really difficult, isn't it? Because um, I was talking to some some colleagues recently about um, when we kind of share things online. You know, we, we use LinkedIn as quite a, a, you know, kind of a professional network. And you really want to be able to share a lot of the fabulous work that goes on. But then you've got to respect privacy and you can't have young people's faces there. And then it loses something of its uh, of its impact. Um, need to be careful of tokenism. Um, you know, the, there are obviously accusations of, you know, wanting to use young people's experiences for marketing purposes because we work in a, you know, we work in that kind of environment. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I think 
it's difficult for because most of the provision is delivered by the independent sector um i think it's very challenging um for them to be able to share that without it attracting all of that negative criticism um but i think for local authorities um you know given that they are commissioning services and let's not you know let's be clear the bulk of residential provision um is doing a good job. You know, all of the sector reports and the analysis says that the, you know, the bulk of residential care is working really well. Standards are generally quite high. There are some really good outcomes, but then when you look at the statistical trends, they're not great. So I think local authorities could play much more of a role in celebrating and promoting um, you know, what the good work that happens in residential care. And maybe that's part of the conversation about helping them to understand or stop and think about, well, what is that job that we're asking those residential services to do? And actually, we're not asking them all to do the same thing. I think it could lead to a different, yeah, a different sort of dialogue about, about what residential care is for. Yeah, and you mentioned again, just kind of make me think about some of the earlier kind of conversation around you know systems and complexity, and that part about trying to attract staff, try to attract people into the workforce who will see it as a you know be authentic, but also see it as a career and stay you know for a period of time. I think that kind of just fits alongside that. If we can kind of share good news, then people are going to get to hear about it and might want to consider it as a as a career, especially yeah, in, in the residential schools. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I started. It, 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 it's um, it's a, it's amazing work to be involved in. I mean, it's a real privilege. You, you can you can take a very kind of um, highfalutin view in terms of if we do the work well, um, we're helping to ensure that these young people go on and live successful, happy. Um, emotionally stable, productive adult lives and that they go on to become good parents or have happy relationships and we're breaking a cycle of, of abuse. You know, that this is big ticket stuff at mm -hmm. a time when, you know, we see rising rates of child poverty and rising rates of families struggling. So it's really, really important work. And then you can really zoom in. Uh, you know, I had the experience the other evening. I've, I've worked a little bit like our offices are on our two sites. We don't have a separate head office. So I'm around the staff and the boys all the time. And I finished a late meeting and I came downstairs and there was a number of staff doing sat at the dining room table doing the homework with three of the boys. And I got to drop my bag down and sit down and help a 12 year old with his English comprehension, which was, a, a you know, it was a lovely, lovely 20 minutes to spend before I went home. So to have those kind of opportunities and for people to understand what's possible, there's a lot to celebrate. There's a lot to yeah, celebrate. Absolutely. So just kind of thinking about your nearly 30 years in practice, if you could go back and give yourself a bit of advice that would help you now, come back to the very early days, what would that be? Uh, when I look, it's funny, when I, when I look back now, when I look back now to that kind of that first management role that I had, um, I, I would have been just just before my thirtieth birthday, I think, when I was in that in that role, and um, I was naive. Uh, I was not. I was naive, really, in terms of um, understanding technically what it was I was doing. So, on an emotional level, 
uh, and on a kind of a psychological level, I was completely committed. I wanted the very best for those children and I wanted to lead those staff and it was very much kind of head of a household and I saw it very much of being about um, quite naively at the time, quite sort of middle class parenting values about, um, you know, house house rules and children having clean and tidy bedrooms and everything being warm and, and them having the right sort of experiences. But I didn't have the technical knowledge to understand working with trauma, um, you know, working with attachment issues and how to take that knowledge and translate it into, you know, what I had in my heart and my head, really. Um, yeah. So I think... Uh, I think it's about understanding the technical side of the task, um, how to harness that. And when you don't know something, go and find someone that does. Yeah. Um, you know, understanding that you have limitations and you're not going to be good at everything and that's okay. Um, and being able to be, it, it's almost not about being humble. It's almost about being reflective that that it doesn't in any way diminish you as a you as a worker to say I'm struggling with this or I don't understand or that young person's really getting under my skin and not not allowing the defensive stuff to kick in which never mm. works <laughs> so, yeah so yeah there's a lot in that really I I, I, never would have, I would never would have known that was a thirty year old never would have known that. Again, again, it's good for people to hear it. Who's maybe just starting out, just now, you know, maybe they're just starting out as a residential carer, or they might be going into their first supervisor's role. And it's that bit about don't be afraid to ask for help, or it's okay not to know. I think they're really important, um, you know. The irony, to hear. The, irony, the irony is that it, I think it's almost think about the things we say to the young people. It's a human thing. You know, we say to the young people about, you know, it's okay to try and if you get it wrong and you make mistakes, then you learn from your mistakes. And we just need to apply the same messages to ourselves as adults and think about yeah. us more as being human beings rather than adults and children. We have far mm -hmm. more, um, we have far more alike than we have as differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what you're saying there, I, I, we've even discussed social pedagogy, but it just, chimes with social pedagogy yeah. you know the perspective and that whole human aspect of you know supporting each other yes. um but listen i appreciate your time um it'd be great to talk to you and i'm sure a lot of people will get tons out of listening to this uh, particular podcast so thank you very much kevin no thank you so much it's been a it's been a real pleasure yeah and I, yeah i look forward to seeing the finished results no probs